0: That is such a powerful line, isn't it? While I was made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. It really speaks of the overwhelming thankfulness and gratitude that we as Christians should have. Uh, And that is, uh, of course, an obligation of a Christian, but it's also a very powerful tool against the anxieties and the depressions and the discouragements of this age, and we're going to see actually the Apostle Paul this morning in Second Corinthians two, twelve through seventeen, take advantage of that tool. We're going to see him in two different sections here within this passage, him move from travail, just overwhelming sense of uh, of discouragement, to triumph as he thinks about the great power, the great majesty of what it means to bear the name Christian. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then unpack this amazing passage from the Apostle Paul in the letters to 2 Corinthians. God, we do turn to you right now and with gratitude and with thankful hearts, God. And and I just think how that pleases you. Just like a parent who is overwhelmed by the gratitude of a loving child and is repulsed by the attitude of a spoiled child. We want to come before you with just a recognition that we deserve nothing other than your judgment, and yet you give us grace. So I pray, God, blessings upon our service of worship. And I pray for those who don't know you that need to receive that grace, that they'd get saved today, that they would see the cross of Jesus, they would understand the great doctrine of the atonement, that Jesus died for the sins of his people, and that they would be one of those people through the power of the Holy Spirit and that they would uh, be able to remember this Sunday as a day uh, of them being born again. For the rest of us, I pray, God, that you would help us to come before you in gratitude and train ourselves in gratitude so that the worries of this world will not choke out all the wonderful things that you've given us. Please, Lord, let us again go to school on the Apostle Paul with our great tutor, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. And teach us great and marvelous truths that will help us to walk in the path of faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn again to Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. You have a home group help insert that might be of assistance to you, uh, not only in following along with the, the passage that we're looking at, but also perhaps to use uh, in home group or also as a family devotion where you can kind of unpack even later on uh, uh, some of what it is that we're learning this morning. Because frankly, it's just a little overwhelming sometimes. Uh, and, um, to, and And there's... Uh, this is a, one of these passages, like so many, that we could preach every Sunday for months and not, still not mind the, the depths of what God is trying to teach us. So, again, Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 uh, through 17. God says, Paul writes, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one in aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We're going to look. First of all, Paul's travail here kind of gives us the background of what Paul was going through uh, in regard to his relationship to the Corinthian church here. You see that in verses 12 through 13 here. And just to remind you, especially if you've not been following along with us during the uh, as our journey through Second Corinthians, that the apostle Paul has a very special relationship with the Corinthian church. He planted it, and he not only planted it; he stayed there for a year and a half, which was pretty long for the apostle Paul. He tended to be more of an itinerant evangelist. And he stayed there, and he, and, and he built up that church with the health of Silas, with the health of, uh, uh, of Timothy, with the self, health of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollo. So, so they, they, had the, they had the right people at the right time building up that church and, and building into the lives of those people. But they were a very, very fickle church. They were, they were Paul's troubled church. I'm always marvel when I go out in the country, and I'm driving, and I'll see Corinth Baptist Church. And I'm thinking, did them people ever look at the Corinthians? (laughs) I'm not sure I'd name a church after Corinthians, you know. Uh, And uh, they were just a mess. They were a mess. So Paul has had to deal kind of difficulty, uh, uh, difficulty with them. Uh, and he went to go speak to them again. And basically it appears that there was somebody who was opposed to him that opposed Paul to his face. Uh, and the church didn't back Paul up. And Paul kind of retreated back to Ephesus. And then he write a, wrote a very firm letter. And, of course, he is very burdened about the reception of that letter. So he goes and he he sends Titus to go find out how everything is going. Uh, Did they receive the letter? Did they repent? This kind of thing. And he's waiting for Titus but he can't keep waiting for Titus. Uh, his anxiety over the condition of the church uh, and his, frankly, his great love for the church is so overwhelming that he goes and tries to kind of meet Titus up uh, partway. So he says he came to, uh, to Troas uh, and um, uh, he's trying to go kind of connect there with Titus. If you know, if you, you know, you're welcome to look at the back of your Bible and see the maps there. But Troas is right, right located right at the top of the Aegean Sea there. It's near the Bosporus, the Dardanelles. Um, Troas is a special place for Paul because this is where he received the Macedonian vision uh, to go into Macedonia and Greece anyway and bring the gospel in, into Europe. Uh, he is there uh, ministering uh, there and, uh, and, and he's, it's kind of a good halfway point between Asia Minor and, uh, and Macedonia and Ocha. And and, but and but while he was there, notice what happened here. A door was open for him. That idea of an open door, it means extraordinary ministry opportunities were there. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you've seen this. There's just times when the gospel seems to to really make a difference. And there are other times when people seem to be very opposed to it. And Paul is one of these. There's something of a of an awakening going on there in Troas. So he is ministering. He's preaching. uh, He's building up the church right there. It's going really well, but he just can't escape this burden. He, he, he's in Troas, and he's ministering in Troas, but his heart and his mind are really distracted by what's going on in Corinth right now. He's, he's more or less uh, waiting on pins and needles. Notice the, what he says here, my spirit can find no rest. Uh, for those of you who deal with anxiety, who deal with depression, who are concerned about what's going on and are just weighed down by the burdens of this world, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul dealt with it from time to time. Now, the difference is he wasn't worried about his retirement plan or what grade he was going to make on the biology quiz. He was worried about others, right? Still, I count it, though. (laughs) I mean, he's an example of so many good and wonderful uh, things and such a man of faith, but he's also a man, right? He's human. He has human emotions, and he is burdened because he doesn't know what's going on here. See, the Corinthian church really, really mattered. I mean, it was the key church in Greece, which kind of makes it the key church in Europe, so it wasn't just Corinth. If Corinth goes down, if it becomes apostate, if it becomes a cult, there could be others that follow in their train. So his, his, his spirit is just not resting right now here. And yet, he was seeing all this fruit in, in Troas, uh, by the way, which is near the city of Troy, the ancient city of Troy. So then he takes the leave of them and he went on to, goes on to Macedonia. He passes over the Bosphorus, He comes down into, into Macedonia and he will tell the Corinthians later on in chapter 7, For even when I came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. Can you relate? Can you relate? You know, this is one of the things I love about Christianity, I love about God's Word. It's real, right? It treats life the way it really is. It's not some kind of a mystical fable they don't just expect you to always be above all the pains of life. You know, uh, this, is all a, this is all a phantom anyway. There's, this is not real. Just pretend it's not real and just move on. No, it's, this is real. We live in a fallen world. We have fallen bodies. And we struggle in life. Even someone as uh, uh, mature as the Apostle Paul has his struggles. He told the Corinthians in 1 first, first Corinthians 15, he dies daily. Well, it's the care of the church. This is the kind of thing that's killing him. In a sense, emotionally, the Corinthian church right now, because of all the way it is, 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 is killing them. Uh, one of our members I uh, had lunch with a couple of weeks ago told me about uh, a quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller is uh, very sick right now. And, uh, of course, he's had a, a, a very powerful ministry up in New York, PCA pastor there. And he was in an interview and he said, uh, Only one thing more, powerful, uh, more painful than pancreatic cancer is pastoral ministry. It's a pretty hefty statement. Spurgeon wrote a little book. I love the title of this book. The Minister's Fainting Fits. Fits of depression come over the m- most of us. Usually cheerful as we may be, we must all at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous. The wise are not always ready. The brave are not always courageous. And the joyous not always happy. There may be here and there men of iron to whom wear and tear work no perceptible detriment, but surely the rust frets even these. And as ordinary men, the Lord knows and makes them to know that they are but dust. Uh, The best of us are constantly reminded, but we are just dust. We're jars of clay. We are flawed, flawed human beings. I would never want to sit under a pastor who thinks he has his act together. I just think that man would have a hard time relating uh, to me. So y'all are in good shape. (laughs) So you look at some of the Go back to 1 Corinthians and you just take, you know, kind of a survey of that and see what's going on there in the church there. You know, this church that Paul loves so much was all divided. They had the, the, all these divisions going on. There were strife. There was literally incest going on within the church. They had all these issues with marriage and singleness and divorce here. They, they were trying, they was confused and, and, uh, and, and over the role of women. They were committing idolatry. There was spiritual pride there. There was abuse of the Lord's Supper. There was misuse of spiritual gifts. Let me tell you how dysfunctional this church is. God had to kill some of them during communion one Sunday. That's pretty extreme. It's pretty extreme. And yet Paul loves them. That's why he's struggling so much with his emotion. Can you feel his emotion here? Can you feel his grief? He is just broken hearted because he cares. They are immature. They are shallow. They are sinful. They are indifferent. They have written him off. And yet he just cannot let them go. They're like a prodigal child that, the, that, the, that the, the parents love more than their good children. I remember, um, I, mean, I really remember this, uh, right the week before I moved to Anderson, some 14 and a half years ago, I was taking my final course for my doctorate degree up at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. And it was me and, um, and, and 15 PCA pastors and one Baptist. Usually it's me and 500 Baptists uh, but this time it was <laughs> it was a lot of Presbyterians in the room and we kind of you know how you start off with those classes uh, who are you what are you doing everything and I said I'm like you know who I am and and I'm going to actually I'm, I'm moving uh, to Anderson and going to become the senior pastor of a of a new church up in the Anderson area and I'll and I'll never forget this this uh, older man who's probably 60 years old looked over at me and he put his hand on on my arm and he said don't get close to your congregation they will break your heart Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Yeehaw! Thanks for the <laughs> cheer. But, you know, uh, this man had been crushed by ministry, and I really thought about that. And I decided to take his advice. No, I didn't. But uh, I, I really thought about that. And I thought, okay, but what's the point? What's the point? I'm not a Vulcan. I'm not a cyborg. I'm not a drone. I'm a human. You are humans. Isn't it worth being brokenhearted? You parents, your grandparents, isn't it worth being brokenhearted to have children sometimes? Well, here's the Apostle Paul. His heart is breaking. He is just overwhelmed because his love is so strong. And that is what's going to happen when you love a lot, you get hurt a lot. It's just worth it, isn't it? What's the, what's the uh, alternative? The alternative is, sadly, seen very often in ministry... Where the pastor just becomes hardened, and becomes cynical, and becomes bitter. God, I came into ministry. I gave up all the stuff to go into ministry and everything. And you give me this flock of people, and blah 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 blah, blah and you just end up being an old crudge mudgeon. Well, take that, take that seriously, folks. It's just worth it. Love will batter bitterness to death. So. If the Corinthian church failed, the gospel in Europe might fail. That's part of Paul's motivation, too, and as it should be. Doctrine matters as well. So now we see here Paul is going through all of this. He's overwhelmed. He's discouraged. Uh, He literally keeps trying to find Titus by moving towards him. I'm thinking they're going to miss each other, but it actually ends up working out. But there's a great transition here. This is one of those beautiful transitions in Holy Scripture, the wonderful butts of Holy Scripture here in verses uh, 14 through 17. And Paul gives us a view of history of a Roman triumphal parade that we are actually part of. And I think what you see here is is a therapeutic way of transitioning from this travail, this Great Depression, to recognizing all that we have in Christ Jesus he goes on with verse 14. But thanks be to God, right? But thanks be to God. He, he's, here's that transitional statement. He is now focusing his attention on heaven instead of all the junk down here. He's looking up instead of looking down and looking down at his own belly button and just thinking about you know, all the pity party he ought to be celebrating right now here. The, and, and, and folks, here's an application for you. I know there's lots of reasons for, for depression, lots of reasons for anxiety. Some of it's organic. Some of it's the way you're raised. Some of it's just your situations get overwhelming. I'm not dismissing that. I recognize that. I deal with some of those things myself here. But let me tell you, at least from a spiritual standpoint, very often <coughs> the, the fix for these things is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Think about all that God has given you instead of all the things that you're going through right now. That's one reason why we meet once a week, right? Thankfulness. You see this in the Psalms, don't you? This is one reason why the th- Psalms are so therapeutic, why you ought to be reading them uh, often, especially if you're down. <coughs> Psalm 34, for instance. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Amen. Now, my guess is the psalmist's circumstances didn't change any. He still had the bad professor. He still had the overwhelming mortgage. He still had the, whatever, whatever, what, 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 what the, the water heater went out with us last week. Got some nice warm showers right now. <laughs> but uh, he still had the circumstances, but he stopped focusing on the circumstances and started focusing on God. And, and you know, we're just a soft culture. We're so used to convenience and, 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 and so many things that are, uh, that are just uh, make life easy when they're rattled, taken away from, or even threatened to take away from. We cave. So, what does he do? He talks about God who leads us in his triumph in Christ. Okay, now, you need to have a little history lesson here. And uh, what, is a, what is a triumph? What is a triumph? Okay, what does that mean? Well, it's, it probably means more than you even know. Uh, the, the Roman triumphant procession, triumphant parade, goes back all the way to pre-Roman Etruscan times. It is the highest honor a conquering general can, can, can receive. And and, uh, there are a lot of you have to qualify for your own triumphant parade here. Uh, So one of the qualifications is it is for the general, the the commander. He has to have completed a campaign that is completely finished. The region is pacified and the victorious troops have to come home. Uh, At least 5,000 enemy soldiers have to have fallen in one battle. That's a lot of killing of enemy soldiers, Right. Uh, You have to have a complete victory. It cannot be a battle in a civil war. It actually has to be a, a battle of conquest. Then the generalists march through the streets. Now, here's the way the parade route goes. It goes through the middle of Rome up to the capital city. All the city comes out. There are laurel wreaths decorated all over the buildings. Uh, and there, and everybody comes out. All the shops closed to be able to see this parade. First came the state officials and the Senate. Then the trumpeters. Then they would bring out all the spoils from the conf, conquered land. For instance, when... Uh, when um, Titus conquered Jerusalem, he took the candelabra, he took the, 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 uh, the branch candlestick and the golden show, table of showbread, uh, and he carried it through the streets that he had captured from the temple in Jerusalem. He would put them on display. We actually have reliefs of them uh, doing that. Then came the pictures and the models of conquered uh, peoples and conquered citadels and even models of conquered ships here. Then they would bring out the white bull that's going to be sacrificed uh, to Jupiter. Then you would bring out the captive princes and generals, and they would all be in chains. And then you would, uh, you would, uh, uh, and they're going to expect to be uh, executed. Then you, would, then came the lictors of the uh, the Roman civil servants, and they're bearing the the rods or the fasces. Uh, if you've ever seen the. Uh, the symbol of Mussolini's fascist party. It was these fascists, these rods with an axe head coming out the top of them. And you think, well, that's kind of interesting. Well, what do you use a rod for? You use a rod for beating people. So it was a symbol of magisterial authority uh, within the government to to practice discipline. Uh, Then you followed by the musicians with their lyres. Then you would have priests swinging censers with a sweet-smelling aroma just covering Rome. Then the general came. So you got all these people coming before. Then comes the general. He is on a chariot drawn by four horses he's wearing a purple tunic embroidered with golden palm leaves and a toga uh, a purple toga with golden stars and again purple was the most expensive dye Uh, it actually came from shellfish Uh, it took thousands of shellfish to make one uh, piece of cloth Uh, he's coming up here and uh, he's got an ivory scepter with a roman eagle on top and there's a, a slave over the back of him holding up the crown of jupiter over his hand over his head as he is going uh, on the chariot. His family comes up behind him, and finally the victorious army, dressed in all their finery, uh, and they go through the triumph. There were over 300 of these uh, in the Greco-Roman uh, history. Uh, General Pompey, when he uh, uh, conquered Mithredes, uh the historian Appian wrote this. In the triumphal procession, where two horse carriages and litters laden with gold or other ornaments of various kinds, also the son of Hysipestes, and the throne and scepter of Mithridates Jupiter himself, and his image, eight cubits high, made of uh, solid gold, and 75,100,000 drachmas of silver coin. Also an infinite number of wagons bearing arms, beaks of ships, and uh, multitudes of captives and pirates, n- none of them bound but all arrayed in their native dress. That's quite a spectacle. I mean, it's like Hollywood, right? But they didn't have CG back then. So the whole day was just, just you know, how long would it take an entire legion to pass by down these ropes and think about the smells and the bells and, the, and all the musicians. Well, what's, so what's Paul's point here? Why is he bringing in that imagery from, from Rome and applying it to you? Well, there's kind of three views here. You're not going to like one of them. Okay, you're not going to like the first one. Uh, One of them is you're one of these prisoners that's going to be executed. And, and this kind of fits with Paul's view. Paul's always introduced him as the servant of Christ, the slave of Christ, right? We are, to, we are crucified with Christ, right? We are a living and holy sacrifice. And a lot of these prisoners' war, they're going to go on and they're going to be sacrificed to the gods of Rome here. And that's that's who we are. That's who we are in that, that train. Um, <clears throat> you take up your cross and follow him, right? Now i don 't like that one you don 't like that one part of it was i don 't like this because I was kind of going through the review of this and preparing for this on on monday mornings that 's the best time for me to do sermon reading. And you know, we had such a marvelous Sunday last week, didn't we? It was just wonderful. We, we learned about uh, a forgiveness. We had the Lord's Supper and this kind of thing. And whenever we, ha- we have one of those just wonderful Sundays, Nancy and I often have a bad Monday. <laughs> and so it was one of those. It was a kind of a low Monday. And I'm thinking, I don't want to hear that I'm going to be a sacrifice in the parade. So we reject that one. And then, uh, no, it's, it's just not the best one. Because the next one is, you're going to like this one, you are a victorious soldier in the celebration. And that's probably the one you've heard the most, right? We're one of those, we're one of those conquering heroes that are going along in there. That also fits, though, with Pauline teaching, right? In Romans 16, 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a militant uh, view there of Christianity that we are conquering kingdoms of darkness. We're bringing light into darkness. And uh, the angels of God are conquering the demons and things like that. Then there's Romans eight thirty seven. All these things we overwhelmingly conquer, conquer through him who loved us. And that's, that's probably more the majority opinion. But there was a third one that I thought was really interesting. And it's sort of connected to the second one. But that you're actually an incense bearer. You remember as I was reading about the parade uh, and, and who was in line? Part of that group, I think group, there were six in the parade or a priest holding incense and they're burning these incense now you think what Rome would normally smell like on a normal day it's probably not lovely but then these then you have these hundreds of priests coming in with this fragrant aroma wafting up and just covering the whole town going up to Caesar himself on his throne as he's looking over the parade so one view is that because Paul goes on to say that we are manifest through us a sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place that we are actually the incense bearers we are actually the ones that are bringing the aroma in here but it's interesting he actually says that we are the incense we are the fragrance of christ so he he may be mixing metaphors here or he's kind of alluding to that priestly service here but we are the aroma of christ but it's interesting as beautiful as that incense smells have y'all ever smelled really nice incense burned frankincense uh it's beautiful right it smells wonderful. It even kind of gets on you, and you smell like it afterwards. But for the some, it's an aroma of death. They hate that smell. And they hate you because you are that aroma. He says here, to one, it's aroma from death to death. Another aroma of life to life. Again, I want you to think about who's in that triumphal parade. You got the victorious soldiers coming up, right? But you also have the defeated soldiers The captives, the slaves, many of whom are going to be sacrificed. They're going to die. They both smelled the incense. To the soldiers, it's an incense smell of victory. To the slaves, it's a smell of death. It's a smell of death. So don't be shocked when people hate your Christianity and they hate your Christ. Because to them, they have refused to repent And they know judgment's coming, so they hate you and they hate your message. But for those of us who've been broken by Christ, who've been saved by grace, who've been filled with the Holy Spirit, boy, there's just nothing like the smell of Jesus. (laughs) There's nothing like truth. There's nothing like fellowship. There's nothing like true worship. It's always going to be this way, folks. It's always going to be this way. We've had kind of a nice reprieve in this country. We've had freedom of of worship. Uh, We're generally accepted in the culture and that kind of thing. That's not the way it is around the world in some ways. It kind of goes back to the truth of 1 Peter 2, doesn't it? Chapters uh, uh, 2, verses 6 through 8. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. You know John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's probably the most known Bible verse in the world. Some people use that verse to teach universalism, that everybody gets to go to heaven, God's God of grace, don't worry about that old judgment stuff. Don't worry about the sin stuff. Everybody's going to go to heaven. Well, them, them some people didn't keep reading John. Because <laughs> if you were to keep reading John, as you're supposed to, you take verses out of context. John 3, 36, right? 20 verses later, it says this. He who believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Bang. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see why some people just don't like The incense of the triumphant parade. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to Paul. And Paul wrote this. And what does he say? Who's adequate for these things? Do you ever ask that question? Who is adequate for these things? In chapter 3, we're going to see that Paul says this. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything from coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. In 2 Corinthians uh, 12, he's going to say, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected of weakness. The context here is the the, the thorn of the flesh that Paul, the messenger from Satan that Paul is going through. Uh, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, that's just good news, isn't it? That is good news. Christ is our sufficiency. Howard Cox never, Elder Cox never um, tires of telling the story, but we have one of our uh, officers who has actually argued cases before the United States Supreme Court. And, uh, and, and and uh, you know, we use the elders very often in these services to do the call to worship and things like that. They're shepherds of the flock. Uh, but it, it's not natural for them or for me in many ways to stand up and preach this this truth to you. So every time we walk through those doors, we got butterflies. I've been doing this for years, and I have butterflies every time. And one of the things Howard likes to say is that, that this particular officer... Said he is more nervous about standing behind this pulpit than he was about arguing a case before the United States Supreme Court. Now, why would that be? Because y'all are so mean? No, y'all are the most forgiving congregation in America. You know how many times I muff it up up here? I get tongue tied and I get rabbit trailed, and sometimes I just play, say stupid things. Right? It's not because y'all are mean, y'all are very accepting. It's because this is so. This is so important. This is life changing. This is God's book. This is truth. That will transform you. And it's scary to teach from it. We just don't want to mess up. But we want you to get it. Who's adequate for that? Not me. Praise God. Again, I would be terrified of sitting under the ministry of a pastor who thought he was adequate. He might be gifted, but he's going to be a pain to be around. And he draws a contrast here, where for we are not like many peddling the word of God. That that word "peddle" or uh, refers to a uh, huckster's. Basically, it would be people who would dilute their wine with water or use false weights. The uh, Uh, Lucian, the 12th, uh, 2nd century Syrian writer said this, the philosophers sell their teaching like tavern keepers and most of them mix their wine with water and misrepresent it. When I was in Ukraine, uh, I don't even remember how many years ago, back in the early 1990s, uh, there were street vendors out and uh, they know Americans because we're the only one with the money and uh, they would hawk their wares and, and I bought a KGB watch. Now, some of you young people don 't even know what the KGB is uh, think the KGB was kind of like the CIA and Gestapo all in one for the Communist Party. Is that a fair description? They were the spy network, and they would, wouldn 't think twice about uh, torturing you to death so uh, I want now i 'm a little embarrassed that I wanted a KGB <laughs> watch now that with that introduction. I was young. Anyway, I wanted a KGB. So I bought a KGB watch from it. I'm like $15. And it became a paperweight within like a week of me getting back. The thing was junk. But it had the KGB seal on it, you know. This is the junk that people are peddling. And they're doing it in so-called evangelical churches. And as a tavern keeper would water down his wine and sell it to you for the same amount, there are people that are watering down the gospel left and right and selling it to their members. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about human responsibility. They don't want to talk about the law of God. They don't want to talk about righteousness. They want to talk about social justice, making a better community, and how nice Jesus is. Well, all those things are important. But you can have the whole glass of wine without the water in it. And that's the real gospel. You take God's love and his judgment together in one cup. You don't water down the, the judgment. But you get people and you fill seats when you do. But I don't know it's the kind of people that you, you want to be in church with. He says here, but they—they they, uh, uh, drawing contrast to, to the apostles and true gospel preachers. Uh, they preach from sincerity, you know. Another that idea of uh, of you judge the, the, the authenticity of something within the the, the sunlight itself. So so uh, if you're walking in the spirit and you believe in the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't mind the light shining on you. You're not going to hide. You're not going to be ashamed. And they speak from God. And they speak in Christ. Speaks of our union of Christ. He's, he, he, is, he, he, can't, he just can't do enough to give God the credit for the ministry here. And they do it in the sight of God. You know, we have the five solas of the Protestant Reformation on the, on the door out front. We've named the classrooms for them to kind of keep that in front of us. The reason why we exist as a church, why we are the people of God. If you were to add a sixth Latin distinctive... Of the, of, the, of the Protestant cause from 500 years ago, it would be this, Coram Deo. Coram Deo. That we as the people of God know that we live before the face of God. There's an accountability uh, and a relational quality to our relationship with God. It's not dead theology. We live before the face of God like a beloved child lives before their parents. This is what Paul is saying here. We do all this in the sight of God. So you see here, Paul starts off pretty depressed, right? His travail. But as soon as he starts focusing on the things of God, he ends up just can't talk enough about God, how wonderful he is, our union with Christ, the, the adequacy that comes from God, and that we are actually part of this amazing triumphant parade, which would have been the highest thing he could think of as he's pointing out this illustration. So let me just close with this quote, kind of a modified quote. The disheartened Christian is disheartened because he focuses on circumstances. The joyful Christian is joyful because he focuses on the eternal worth of his service to God. The disheartened Christian considers his difficulties. The joyful Christian considers his privilege. That's a good lesson for today, isn't it? Father, we do pray that you would apply this to our heart. It's so easy as we're in here in the comfortable of this chapel and and listening to the truth and Uh, The the dogs of this world are not barking at our heels right now, God, but as soon as we walk out those doors, we're going to be tested. We're going to be tested. And I just pray, God, that you would help us to take advantage of that wonderful document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that is based upon Holy Scripture, where it speaks that you are the great first cause of everything. Our broken water heaters, our sick children, our, over, our bad professors are all part of second causes. But as the children of God, we know that our daddy is over all and is the great first cause. That ought to really give us some confidence and some joy that we're lacking. So help us, Lord, to look up instead of looking down and around. And take us from our travail to the triumph that you have told us that we are in. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.